Jesus, we acknowledge that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in our hearts, we desire and long to give you first place in all things. We trust that Christ has been exalted in our worship thus far. And now, Lord, we commit this time, the preaching of the word into your hands and pray that Jesus would be glorified in our midst. Give your grace and your help to the preacher and open the hearts and the ears of those who hear the word this morning. And we commit our time to you in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, If the fours and fives haven't made their way out, feel free to do so. Leave now or you're stuck. Our sermon text this morning is in Acts chapter 12, and I invite you to turn there if you're not there already. Acts chapter 12 will attempt to cover the entire chapter today, God willing. I'd like to begin by posing this question, what would it take to stop Christ's church? What would it take to thwart and ultimately bring down the church, to snuff it out of existence? Is that possible? The answer, of course, is no, it's not possible. There is nothing capable of doing that. There is no earthly or otherworldly power that is able ultimately to stop the growth and the existence of the church. Now, we can say that with confidence because of Jesus' promise in Matthew 16, verse 18, where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's Jesus' promise, and it's true. But that doesn't mean that it's all smooth sailing and that there are no setbacks, humanly speaking, for the church of Jesus Christ. Satan and his minions are set against Christ and his purposes. Our culture, the spirit of the age, walks in lockstep with the God of this age. And remaining sin still plagues even the godliest of Christians in this life. Now, you add that all together, and it's sort of like flying into strong headwinds with a lot of turbulence. I mean, yes, you're going to reach the destination, but it's going to be a long and bumpy flight. Now, Acts 12 records some significant bumps and opposing winds of the young church in Jerusalem. And and that's actually putting it mildly. It's more accurate to say that the church in Jerusalem is flying through a hurricane And it looks on the surface as if things with the plane are not going to go well. It's at the risk of going down. As you come to the chapter, it begins with an earthly tyrant targeting the young Christian movement. One key church leader is dead at the hands of this ruler. And another prominent church leader is sidelined in prison, soon to be martyred for sure. And the tyrant king struts around in his pomp and splendor like a peacock unchecked. Now, if you didn't know the end of the story, as those early believers did not yet know the end of the story, you might genuinely wonder if this spells the beginning of the end for the church. Is this fledgling new Christian movement, this new thing, these followers of Jesus, are they about to be crushed 
out of existence. They don't have the advantage of 2,000 years plus. They didn't know the end of the story. But that's the reality facing the church of Jerusalem in Acts 12. The bad guys were winning, if we could put it that way, and it seemed like the church of Jesus Christ was on the verge of losing the fight. I think we kind of know how that feels. We feel that way in our own day and in our own time as Christians have throughout the centuries. Well, there are, of course, isolated setbacks. Three steps forward, two steps back. Trouble for sure for the church. We know that. There are moments when the church seems on the verge of collapse. But as long as King Jesus is on the throne, as long as his promise still stands and holds true, the church will prevail and go from strength to strength. We have Jesus' word on that. And that's the great truth and reality that I think plays out for us here in Acts 12 and in fact throughout the entire uh, book of Acts. We don't have the advantage of having walked through the book. We're jumping into chapter 12, but I trust you have some familiarity with this great book of Scripture. This morning, we're going to organize our thoughts around four kind of scenes or movements in this chapter, and each in their own way contribute to the overall important truth that God in Christ is sovereign over all and nothing, absolutely Nothing will thwart the spread of the gospel and the advance of the church according to Christ's purposes. That's the big lesson from this chapter. It's a message the early church needed to know, and I think it's a truth that equally so the modern church needs to grasp and lay hold of as well as we slug it out for Christ in this world. Well, we've got some ground to cover. So without saying more, let's begin looking at verses 1 through 5. I don't have a PowerPoint, but I think our, our, uh, the flow of the sermon, the points will be clear enough. Verses 1 through 5, Luke introduces us to the harsh reality of King Herod's aggression against the Jerusalem church. So Herod's aggression against the church. Now Herod plays prominently in this chapter, and Luke begins right there in verse 1 with a spotlight on him. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Um, there, there are multiple Herods in Scripture. This is not uh, the Herod of Jesus' birth story. That's Herod the Great. Uh, nor is this Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas, the one who had um, John the Baptist beheaded and the one before whom Jesus stood before his crucifixion. Uh, our Herod here in chapter 12 is Herod Agrippa I. He is the grandson of Herod the Great, and he ruled from A.D. 41 to 44. He, he actually ruled pretty much all that we think of when we think of Israel and the Promised Land, even on up into Syria. Um, side note, this Herod here, his son is Herod Agrippa II, which is the Agrippa that Paul's going to encounter later in chapters 25 and 26 where Paul gives his defense before Agrippa. That's the son of our Agrippa. Okay, that was a side note. I, I think it would be altogether easier if they just had different names. Um, it feels a little bit like George Foreman, who named all five of his sons, the heavyweight boxer, named all five of his sons George, and even named one of his daughters Georgetta. I mean, that's like a disaster at the family dinner table. It's kind of like that here. But Herod Agrippa I, he had a rocky relationship with Rome, and... 
like most rulers, a tenuous relationship with the Jews in Palestine. Combine this with his own ego, and you've got in the making a typical ancient ruler who's both proud and also paranoid, will do whatever it takes to maintain power. Uh, through some political maneuvering, some favors with Rome, he ends up ruling over uh, this large area that was even larger than Herod the Great, his grandfather. So verse 1 tells us this, that this king, this Herod, Herod Agrippa I, laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. Now, we don't know how many Christians he got a hold of. Verse 1 doesn't tell us. But we do learn this from verse 2, that Herod apprehended a pretty high-profile leader in the early church. Verse 2, Herod killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is James, the brother of John, James the apostle, one of the inner three closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And Luke tells us rather matter-of-factly that, yeah, Herod proceeds to kill James with the sword, probably meaning that he was beheaded. James is the first of the apostles to die for his master. Uh, Stephen died earlier. Chapter 7 was martyred. Stephen was not one of the 12. James is the first of the 12 to be martyred. And actually, Jesus, if you remember, in cryptic terms, kind of foretold this when he told James and John that they would drink the cup that he would drink, be baptized with the baptism, uh, with his baptism. And that was sort of a way of saying, you are going to taste suffering and even death as you walk on the road of discipleship. There is a lot that we'd like to know uh, about James here. What were his last words? How, how did he testify and witness to Christ at the very end? Or what about John, his brother? How, how did John the apostle feel about losing his brother? All those, all those moments with Jesus together. John's going to go on to live for 50-some more years how did he feel losing his brother? How did the church feel losing their first apostle? I mean, there's just a lot of questions that surround the death of James, but Luke really doesn't give us any details. He just mentions it, and it goes on. In fact, one verse, one sentence, really, that's all. Stephen gets a whole chapter and a half. James gets one verse. We do know this. We do know this. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. And no doubt, James heard those reassuring words from his master on the shores of glory. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. The, uh, the rest of the apostles will eventually follow James in martyrdom. But guess what? Scripture doesn't give us any of that information either. We don't have the record of anyone else's death. Only James. Maybe because he was the first? We don't know. What we do know is that James's death at Herod's hands shows just how hostile and threatening the situation is right now for the church in Jerusalem. So the authorities are targeting not just rank-and-file church members, but they're targeting now the leaders. And certainly the church is on the threshold of some big problems. The storm is unleashed. It's not the first time they've had problems but this is significant. Luke, of course, moves quickly off of James and onto some other ramifications of Herod's aggression because that's where he wants to focus. We read this in verses 3 and 4. And when he saw, when Herod saw that it pleased the Jews to, to kill James, 
he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. Now Herod gauges public opinion regarding James's death and discovers that there's significant public approval for what he just did. So with the winds in his favor, he proceeds to round up Peter and have him arrested. Now, Peter, as we know, is a pretty big fish. Uh, he is the leader there right now in these early days of the church in Jerusalem uh, in, in the apostolic sense of the word. Uh, and Herod decides, I'm going to go for the leaders. And so he gets James, now he gets Peter. That seems to be the plan. Now we're told in verse 3 that Herod arrests Peter during this feast of uh, unleavened bread. This refers to the seven-day festival and feast after Passover, after the Passover meal. This is an important piece of the story for a few reasons, but one of the reasons is because this timing with the feast here forces Herod to delay Peter's trial and his execution. And make no mistake that Peter's execution is on the agenda. It's not just that he's going to have him arrested. Uh, Peter's going to meet Herod's sword just like James did. But according to Jewish custom and law, criminals could not be tried and sentenced during Passover and during the feast. And so in God's providence, Herod here wants to play by the rules, determines he just needs to put Peter in prison and wait until it's over, the week is over. Then he's going to put him to death. Now, he apparently considers Peter to be a pretty significant threat, hence the four squads of soldiers. Each squad consisted of four soldiers, so there's 16 soldiers, probably rotating out four at a time, all guarding Peter. Ominous clouds. Storm clouds are here, and actually the storm's already unleashed. Herod's caught two big apostolic fish. One's executed, one's soon to be executed. Situation's looking pretty bleak. The big question, what's going to happen to the church? What are God's people going to do? What's going to happen? What's next and who's next? That's the big question. Certainly the believers in Jerusalem were feeling that, and I think Luke wants us to start to feel that too. From the human perspective, the situation is near hopeless. But maybe, maybe, just maybe, there's a different perspective and something else happening here. Look with me at verse 5. Note the contrast. So Peter was kept in prison, but, on the other hand, earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. You know, the human side of the equation is... It's just that. It's just the human side of equation of the equation. It's earthly, it's limited. Despite the bleak situation, there is a God who's sovereign, there's a God on the throne, and Luke wants to remind us of that here in verse 5. Now, I know in our Bibles, my Bible here, there's just a little white space between verse 5 and verse 6, but if, if this were a drama unfolding, if this were a play, I think there'd be sort of, the, the curtain might fall right here, the lights might go dark, and there might be this dramatic pause between verse 5 and 6. He wants us to see the contrast. Humanly speaking, it's bleak, it's hopeless, but the church is praying. Pause. What's going to happen next? Well, we have the rest of the story. 
Let's turn our attention to the next scene, which is the largest chunk of the story, verses 6 through 19. We've seen Herod's aggression. Here is Peter's miraculous deliverance and and some of the aftermath. Luke sets up the scene this way in verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. So we don't know how many days were still left in the festival there when Peter was imprisoned, um, but we do know this, it's now the final night. So soon, probably at the break of day, Herod's going to bring Peter out, quickly try him, and execute him. Uh, there, there's, there's no more wiggle room. The, hours of the, the, the sands of the hourglass are, are pretty much gone. And if God doesn't do something quick, it, it's over. There is no tomorrow for Peter. So humanly speaking, there's no way Peter's going to get out of this. Verse 6 tells us he's bound with chains to two soldiers. Two other soldiers are posted at the door, the, the entrance. Um, so if, if he had any sort of like dig through the ground, covert Alcatraz plan for escape, like that's not going to work. There's no way to get out of the situation, humanly speaking. Uh, why was he so heavily guarded? Probably because he was so prominent and it shows how much of a threat Herod considered him and the church as a whole. Uh, But secondly, I think we need to remember, if you just think back to Acts, this is actually not the first time Peter was in prison nor the first time that there was a prison break. Acts chapter 5, Peter's imprisoned by the Jewish authorities in this case with the other, other apostles or at least some of them. And we read this in chapter 5, verse 19, that during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. So that had already happened, and you can imagine word of that got around. Uh, There's already been a prison break, and Peter was involved in that. Herod's going to make sure that doesn't happen a second time. All right, the great escape. Here we go. Verse 7 through 11. This begins the account of the actual deliverance, and I'm just going to read those verses all at once here just to to give us the scene. Verse 7, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to, to him, to Peter, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street. And immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod, and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. Now, some of you are very sound sleepers. You know who you are. And you might appreciate the fact that verse 7, the angel actually has to strike Peter to wake him up. It's, it's, a, it's a word that implies, you know, the angel really did strike him. Um, some of us who are light sleepers, you know, just a little whisper of the name would have done fine. And we would have woken up. But Peter is, is in a deep sleep which we could chase that trail a little bit and say, imagine that he's going to be executed the next day and he's sleeping peacefully. I think there's some lessons there. We don't have time to explore it. 
Everything in this account speaks to the miraculous nature of Peter's deliverance. His chains just fall off for seven uh, without waking or disturbing the, other, the, the guards chained to him. In verse 10, uh, Peter and the angel just pass right by the other two guards standing watch. And then also in verse 10, the iron gate just opens of its own accord. I kind of think in, in Star Wars, you know, like there's a Jedi thing happening there, which is and the door opens. I mean, it's just miraculous. The angel comes with the light, the whole thing. And all of this happens. The angel and Peter just walking out. Nobody is any the wiser for it. Clearly, God has done something miraculous here. There's no other explanation, which is exactly Peter's conclusion in verse 11 after he gets his wits about him. He says, uh, when Peter, Luke says, when Peter came to himself, verse 11, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. So we say, yes, Peter got it. He understood exactly what happened. This was God at work to deliver him. No other explanation. This is actually one of three miraculous prison breaks in the book of Acts. Uh, I already mentioned the one in chapter 5. Uh, which is not a long story, the actual deliverance, but chapter 5. And then there's this one, and then there's a very familiar one in Acts 16 with Paul and Silas in Philippi, where the earthquake happens and the doors fling open and uh, the, the jailer gets saved as a result, he and his family. So there's three of these episodes, and one of the unique elements of this prison rescue in Acts 12, I think, is the detail that Peter gives in verse 5 back to verse 5 where he tells us but earnest prayer for Peter was made to the church by God and I think there's a connection there because Luke wants us to see and understand that a praying church can make a difference and we should never underestimate the role of prayer and God's people praying before the throne according to God's sovereign purposes so I, I think what a what a thing to behold and it causes us to say what what are we praying for as a church what could we be praying for what might God do through the prayers of his people here at Eden both to glorify himself and to accomplish his purposes in this world I think Luke would say to us yes pray pray individually pray corporately pray and let God do what he's going to do according to his purposes and it's sure to be above and beyond all that we can imagine or think. Ephesians 3. Peter, up until this point, has been in this very incoherent days. And remember, we're told in verse 9, he doesn't really even know what's happening until after the fact. But now that he's out in the, the night air, the angel leaves him, he's on the street, the fog lifts, and he, and he realizes this was not a dream, this was not a vision, this was real. He says that in verse 11. He knows now that God delivered him from prison. That's the right conclusion. It's exactly what happened. The church was praying. God acted. Peter was delivered. Escaped the clutches of King Herod. You say, that's great. End of the story. Well, not quite. What happens next? Is Peter's just out there. Out of, I mean, what do you do when you escape from prison? which is this maybe not the right application question but what do you do you just got out of prison what's his plan if he's not careful he's going to get rounded up again so what happens well we need to look at verses 12 through 17 for that 
Uh, we're told in verse 12 that Peter had straight for Mary's house. When, when he realized this, in other words, when he came to his senses and it all became clear, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were, here it is again, were praying. Mary uh, is the mother of John Mark, as, as Luke says here. This is the John Mark that Paul and Barnabas will take with them on their journey, missionary journey. Uh, this is the Mark who will go on to write the, the Gospel of Mark, uh, the Gospel that bears his name. So this, it appears that Mary's house here, John, John Mark's house, is a, a familiar gathering point, maybe one of the, the primary gathering places for the church there in Jerusalem. So Peter makes for Mary's house under the cover of night. And uh, beginning in verse 13, the story takes, well, kind of a humorous twist. Uh, this is one of those moments where you do wish you had like, ancient video cameras that, that could capture this. It's obviously still a very serious situation. At any minute, Peter could get you know, found out again, recaptured, all that. All that. Um, some guard could see him, whatever. But the, the gravity of the situation notwithstanding, these, these next verses are, are actually fairly humorous in, in some ways. So just follow the story here as I read from verse 13 to 18. We'll just let Luke tell the story. When Peter knocked at the door of the gateway, so he's back at Mary's house now, a servant girl named Rhoda, meaning Rose, so Rosie comes to answer. Verse 14, she recognizes Peter's voice and in her joy she did not open the gate but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Most commentators highlight the, the irony here of the praying saints in the house. Uh, though they were earnestly praying to God for Peter, they, they seemed either unable or unwilling to actually believe that God did deliver him from prison. Somewhere between verse 5 in the earnest prayers and Rhoda's announcement in verse 14, there, there must have been some doubt that crept in some unbelief that God would actually really answer the prayer. Now, maybe we shouldn't be so surprised by that. Uh, I, we're capable, I think, both of believing and also having threads of unbelief and doubt kind of woven into our human hearts. I mean, I, I ask myself, do, do I ever pray with absolutely a pure heart uh, that somehow is not tainted by the reality of my human fallenness? I mean, do I ever pray like that? I, I frequently feel like the man who said to Jesus, I believe, but what? Help my unbelief. And I think, yeah, that, that describes us. That describes me. Maybe that's what we see happening here with the members of the church. They're praying. They do believe in principle that God can deliver. They've seen him do things before. But, wow, he actually did it. <laughs> God actually answered the prayer, and apparently in some way, shape, or form, in some measure, they, they weren't expected. They're surprised by that. It's, it's interesting. 
In any case, the situation resolves in verse 16. Um, during all this back and forth between Rhoda and the, and the praying saints inside the house, Peter, verse 16, he's still knocking. <clears throat> he's still at the gate. You know, it's kind of like, meanwhile, back on the ranch. And, and Peter's knocking. He, he wants to get their attention. So eventually, it all clicks. And Peter's knocking, gets their attention, and they go to the gate to let him in. You can imagine what a sweet and shocking kind of reunion that this is. Uh, there was no doubt some eruption of praise and excitement and questions. What, how did that happen? Tell us. Tell. So you know that that's happening because Peter, it, it says in verse uh, uh, 17, motions with them to, to be quiet. In other words, like settle down. This is nighttime and we're going to cause a ruckus here. So I, I don't know how he did it, but uh, motions for them to sit down. You may be seated, you know, that kind of thing. But Peter ex- begins now to quiet them down. Once they, they do settle down, he explains what happens. And he highlights the story and, and tells them. And then look at verse 17 with me again. We've got to see Peter's perspective. He says, he described to them, Luke says, Peter described to them how the Lord brought him out of prison. So yes, it was the angel, but it was really God's doing. God's sovereignly working. God's sovereignly orchestrating. God's sovereignly delivering it. Peter was dead tired and half asleep when it was all happening, but he finally came to and he came to the right conclusion. This was God's work. And Luke wants us to see, yes, it was God's work, but it was also the answer to prayer. God's people were praying for Peter, even though they were surprised that the prayer was answered in the way it was. Some commentators have suggested maybe the church was praying in this kind of way, Lord, help Peter to just be faithful to the end. He's going to die, help him be faithful. And that was the, the content of their prayers. I, I tend to think it was more the opposite. They're praying for his deliverance and just the reality of the human heart. They're surprised that God actually answered in the way he did when he did. All right. After recounting God's deliverance, Peter then gives instructions to the believers there. And it's brief. It's clear. He just says, tell these things to James and the brothers. Uh, he's referring there to James, the half-brother of Jesus, who is now the leader of the church in Jerusalem. James will appear back on the scene prominently in chapter 15. This is the same James who wrote the New Testament letter that bears his name. So tell it to James and tell it to the brothers. Let, let everyone there who needs to know in the church of Jerusalem what just happened. And then basically Peter says, goodbye, I'm out of here. And he leaves. And so at the end, there in verse 17, Peter departs and heads off to some untold place for safety. Luke doesn't tell us where. Be nice to know where. Roman Catholic tradition says he went to Rome and became the first pope. Now you've got to go well outside the pages of Scripture to come up with that. We don't have anything recorded for us. In fact, the next 20 years of Peter's ministry, we don't have recorded for us. It's interesting, isn't it? God's sovereign design. We, we don't know. I mean, we do have two letters from Peter that he wrote towards the end of his life, First and Second Peter, but we really don't know much else about Peter's life and ministry after this. He's going to go on for 20 more years to serve Jesus and to serve the church. This makes Acts 12 all the more important because it's a crucial hinge or transition in the story of the early church and in the book of Acts. Luke is going to close the curtain now on Peter's ministry. 
He, he pops up again quickly in chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council. But basically, Luke is done putting the spotlight on Peter and all that he did in the early years of the church. Beginning in chapter 13, he's going to move that spotlight to Paul as the gospel goes out beyond Jerusalem, beyond Judea and Samaria, and it goes out to the ends of the world, the Roman Empire. So this is a significant moment in church, early church history. This is a significant moment in the book of Acts as Peter, verse 17 says goodbye, and heads off. It kind of makes you just realize, you know, none of us are, uh, we're all expendable in, in the best sense of the word. We're all useful. We're servants of God, and we need to serve our generation. But the work will go on when we pass. The work will go on when the baton goes to the next person because Jesus will build his church. We move on to verses 18 and 19 where we learn of just the aftermath here of Peter's escape from, from Herod's point of view. Verse 18, Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what it had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. This is the aftermath of the deliverance from Herod's perspective. I won't say much here, just point out three brief things. First, notice Luke's expression, there was no little disturbance. Right? That's a, a, a figure of speech where you, you make an understatement because you're trying to emphasize the, the opposite. There's actually a great commotion. There was a great disturbance. And you can understand why. No one has an explanation for how or why Peter escaped. How did he get past the most fortified place in, in Jerusalem? Second, in the absence of uh, any answers and given the fact that Peter, this prized prisoner, escapes, uh, Herod proceeds to execute the guards. This is in keeping with typical uh, ancient practice. You let the prisoner escape, you lose your life. Thirdly, well, and it makes you wonder, like, I doubt many of the Roman soldiers were volunteering to, like, guard the next batch of apostles who were imprisoned. No, thank you. Third, Luke details for us that Herod, after this event, leaves Jerusalem and goes to the coast to Caesarea. This was a base of operations, Caesarea, a base of operations for Roman authorities, and it's where we find Herod located in, this, in the next verses. So Luke is kind of providing just a transition to show us, okay, Herod leaves Jerusalem, and now he goes to Caesarea. Next scene, we're going to be in Caesarea. And that brings us to verse 20 through 23. We've seen Herod's aggression against the church and against two prominent apostles in the first five verses. We've seen God's miraculous deliverance in this big middle section, verses 6 through 17. We've got a few verses of the aftermath there in 18 and 19. Now we come to what might strike some readers as a pretty surprising conclusion. And yet, on the other hand, maybe it's not that surprising of a turn of events. We come now to the demise and the end of King Herod. Herod's going to meet a divinely appointed end. Verse 20 sets up the scene, provides the historical background. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. Uh, for the sake of time, won't comment on verse 20. It's just, it's just because Luke really is trying to get us to the next verses, I think. 
What happens in 21, 22, and 23 is most noteworthy. So let's look at 21. On an appointed day, Herod, tyrant Herod, put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Verse 23, And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give glory uh, give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. <laughs> Herod makes this official appearance at his seat of judgment. That's the, the Bema seat, uh, the judgment seat. This was some elevated tribunal or rostrum where government officials would make pronouncements and they would judge cases. Pilate tries Jesus on his Bema seat, his judgment seat. So the same thing's kind of happening here. Herod's there delivering this speech to the crowd. And in verse 22, it, Luke tells us that the people begin to shout these accolades to him and praise him as a god. First century historian Josephus, Jewish historian, recounts this event. He writes about it. And uh, it's, there's just interesting parallels with the biblical, biblical account here. They don't match exactly on everything, but largely they're parallel. Josephus adds some details, so to the extent we can learn from some church history, maybe we can weave some of this together. Josephus writes and says that Herod wore an extravagant silver robe, and he describes the scene. He says that uh, when the rays of the morning sun began to hit Herod's robe and hit the silver in the robe, it just he sparkled and he just became resplendent. The rays were dazzling off of his robe, gave the hair this appearance of splendor. And as that happened, the people, Josephus says, began to hail him as a god. Now, maybe that was just flattery. Maybe there was some, some who were genuine in that. In any case, Josephus goes on to say of Herod, upon this, meaning upon hearing and receiving the praise of men and their ascription of deity, upon hearing this, Herod did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. In other words, he, he just soaked it in. He soaked in the glory and the praise of the people and the praise that he was a God. Now, if you know your Bible at all, you know that this is not going to go well for the person who robs God of his glory. It didn't go well for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Daniel chapter 4, when he boasted of his own power and glory and God strips him down and humiliates him like an animal. It didn't go well for the king of Tyre who exalted himself as a rival to God, Ezekiel chapter 28. The Lord vows there in Ezekiel 28 to uh, basically crush him and bring him down to the pit. And we're all very well familiar, I think, with God's declaration in the book of Isaiah where it says this, I am the Lord, that is my name. What does God say next? My glory I will not give to another. Isaiah 42, 8. God will not give his glory to another. Try as humans may. Herod's going to learn this lesson on the spot and learn it in the hard way. The people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Verse 23, immediately the angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. The hammer of divine judgment falls on Herod because he's glory stealing. He's robbing God of his glory. 
And God says, that's it. You've crossed the line. Only God knows when the limit of divine forbearance has been reached, when divine patience has come to an end. But there is a line. And after that line, judgment awaits on the other side. Josephus, again, in his account, records that as Herod was receiving the praise of the crowd, again, this is not biblical, this is just Josephus' historical record, that as Herod was receiving the praise, he saw an owl, which then in ancient times was just an omen, a very bad omen. And uh, in that instant, after seeing the owl, Josephus says that uh, Herod was struck with severe abdominal, abdominal pain, And his attendants took him straight away back to his residence and he died five days later. Now, if we were to join in Luke's description here with Josephus, I I think what happens here is that God strikes Herod down and he doesn't die immediately, but it's the beginning of the end with some sort of stomach or intestinal ailment. And within five days, Herod's gone. The Lord struck him down. Oh, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. So he's eaten by worms. I mean, maybe that's a description of what was going on inside of him or maybe after the fact of his decay. We don't know. Pleasant thoughts, right? Whatever the case, some of the details, whatever the case, we do know this. There's no confusion about Herod's end nor lack of clarity as to why he died. The Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And you just wonder if only all earthly rulers and anyone in authority and all people would recognize that fact. Wouldn't this world be a better place? It's the heart of the unregenerate person to rob God of glory. That's just the way it is by definition. That's the human bent. And that was each of us before God changed our hearts, before he opened our eyes, our bent towards glory-stealing, It's all about us. Paul describes it this way. He describes unbelievers in Romans 1 that they do not honor God. Catch that? They they do not honor God nor give thanks to him. But they exchange the glory of the immortal God for, fill in the blank, whatever their idol substitute is. That's unbelieving humankind. That was us before God got a hold of us. And the only hope for such idolaters and glory stealers is to renounce that rebellion, to turn from it, and to recognize God's glory in the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope. If you've not bowed your knee to Jesus and given God the glory due his name, it's not going to end well for you. God says that. It's not going to end well for anyone who's rejected his lordship. And God's lovingly informed all of us of that ahead of time. Don't be a Herod. Don't be a Herod Agrippa. Humble yourself and give God the glory that is due him. Turn from self-dependence and entrust your life and your eternity to Jesus Christ. Jesus defeated sin and death on the cross. He rose from the dead so that all self-loving, self-absorbed Herods of this world can turn from their way and redirect their love and their worship 
to God and to God alone. That's why he created us. And that's where life is. Don't be a Herod Agrippa. Luke paints for us a very, very stark contrast in this chapter, doesn't he? He does. Think about it. At the beginning of this chapter, Herod's on the rampage, James is martyred, Peter's in prison, and the church is helpless, doing the only thing it can do, which is to pray. By the end of the chapter, yes, James is still martyred. That didn't change in God's providence. But Peter's free, and Herod has been judged and has now been eaten by worms. And the church? What about the church? What about God's people? What about the cause of Christ? Verse 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. You see that contrast? Think of the flow of the chapter. Do you see that? But the word, but, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Herod's dead. The big threat to the church, rising up against God, shaking his fist. Herod's dead. That's an abrupt demise. But the word of God increases and multiplies. How can that be amidst so much opposition, amidst strong headwinds? The forces of Satan are powerful. Sin still runs amok in the world and even in the hearts of believers. I mean, how can this verse 24 be true? Well, the reason is because of what we said at the beginning. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The reason that verse 24 is true is because of Jesus' promise in Matthew 28. All authority, says Jesus, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he turns to his disciples and says, Go, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm with you and I have all authority. That's why the word of God continues to grow and increase. That's why verse 24 is true. And wow, does it stand in contrast to earthly kings and earthly agendas and everything else that rises up against God and his kingdom. This is God's work. The church is Jesus' work. We are not the architects of Operation Church. We are not the engineers of this global mission. We're just the stewards. We're, we're just witnesses. That's all we are. We're just witnesses. We witness to the fact that Jesus is king and he's the fulfillment of all that God promised. Forgiveness and reconciliation with God are found in him. He is Lord and Savior. We're witnesses of that. The church will advance in this world despite opposition, despite the Herods, despite culture and everything else because Jesus promised it would. And we can take heart in that and we can rest in this, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Yes, even in the face of terrible odds, God's kingdom will advance, the church will prevail and it will be victorious because of Christ. It was true in the first century with the Jerusalem church under their threats and I believe with all my heart it remains true in the 21st century even here at Eden Baptist. We live as ambassadors for Christ in this world and it's growing ever darker. Let's remember Acts 12. Let's pray.
God Almighty, if we didn't have the words of Scripture and the promises of Jesus, we would lose hope because much of the world seems to be growing ever darker around us and sometimes our light is, seems but a flicker. And yet we do have the great hope and the promise that Jesus is the Lord of his church and he will build it. And we thank you for that. Thank you for the faithfulness of those who've gone before us, for the apostles, for the early church, for those who suffered greatly but were faithful to Jesus. And that's been true through the ages. Help us to carry the torch faithfully in our generation, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.